Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. My friends, those who have survived this heat wave, welcome back. I feel a little guilty in my sacred spot, sheltered from the heat and the northerly winds. I've paid my price last year when the temperatures soared to 116 degrees, or 46 degrees Celsius. Yes, it was hot. Or, so I was told. I was huddled in the one air-conditioned room that I had. I also remember spending many hot nights in air-conditionless Florida in my youth. I have paid my dues. I think it's about time we start embracing the ancients and start building houses with wind catchers. I often used to ask myself how the ancients made ice in the desert. Well, these wind catchers can, in fact, make ice and keep everything pretty cool. The engineering marvel is one to behold, and I encourage you to do a little Google. Also, we could paint our roofs white to reduce the heat. I am a huge fan of the use of hemp and lime to build a house, and if done correctly, it can maintain a year-round temperature of living standards without the use of heating or cooling. That, with an added benefit, it would take all the CO2 out of the air while making its walls stronger over time. I must admit, I worry for my fellow humans. I worry for the people who face food insecurities. I feel like this is still the good times, and sadly, I think it's only going to get worse. I feel like the Bronze Age collapse will have a rebound. What would cause all civilizations to suddenly collapse? Especially the Hittites. Those are curious to me. They were so inland that they couldn't have been affected by a flood or a tidal wave. So why would a vast civilization that was located far from sea suddenly stop being a city? Hattusa, the capital of the Hittite Empire, is still being excavated. They unearthed texts, but they are all boring stuff like taxes, peace treaties, and calls for help. Even the Minoan-Mycenaean mix of Linear Script B as equally as boring stuff. The Phoenicians rose to power after the Trojan War. Their <coughs> phonetic alphabet, choosing to make a symbol for a sound instead of an entire word. They only had consonants, but still, it took off to all who were introduced to it. They became hooked on phonics. Most historians believe that the Iliad and the Odyssey were written by one person, probably not Homer himself, but this single act of passion grew our writing and knowledge base forever. Homer was the first work that was not about beer recipes, taxes, marriages, deaths, or properties. For this episode, I'll be focusing in on the first documented case of nationalism, the rise of the earthborn, or autothokon, and how this word combines Plato and the ancient Greeks. I will go over some mythology on Hesphestus and Gaia, and as usual, leave you with more questions than you have answers. I use Plato's work, as well as Wikipedia, as my sources, along with some distant knowledge locked away in my head from who knows where. As usual, my source is linked in the episode description.
Atlas. He made the first king of the territory, and he gave him the largest and the best, which was his mother's house and the surrounding area. The entire territory and the ocean were called Atlantic after him. To his twin brother, Gadrius, he was given the extremity of the territory towards the pillars of Heracles, facing the country that is now called Gades. The Hellenic name for him is Imulus. The second pair of twins he called one Amphries and the other Avemon. The third pair of twins he gave the name of Manessus and Arothokon. The fourth pair of twins he called the elder Elasippus and the younger Mester. The fifth pair he gave the elder the name of Aesis and the younger of Diapapris. Now that third pair of twins he gave the name of Manessus and Arothokon. That name Arothokon has always stuck with me. In its barest of terms, it translates to a person made from the soil and rocks. It means a person who was not made by one of the Olympians or a descendant of one of them, but from the soil itself. This was the theory and led to the first modern democracy. If people aren't divine, then the ruling of a country should be from all of the people equally. There is not a leader that is appointed by the gods. As far as we know, this idea from classical era Attica itself. They were famous for calling themselves Autothokonis. This would be after the Trojan War and after the Bronze Age collapse. However, there are other city-states who bore the title Autothokon, such as Central Mainland Greece and the Peloponnese. The only other place this name really appears is when referencing Atlantis. Here's Herodotus. Seven tribes inhabit the Peloponnese. Two of these are Autothokonis and are now settled in the land where they lived in the old days, the Arcadians and the Kynurians. Four nations and no more, for as far as we know, inhabit Libya, two of which are Autothokonis and two are not. The Libyans in the north and the Ethiopians in the south of Libya. The Phoenicians and the Greeks are later settlers. Then, a long time afterwards, the Carians were driven from the lands by the Dorians and the Ionians and came to the mainland. This is the Cretan story about the Carians, but the Carians themselves do not subscribe to it, but believe that they are Autothoconus inhabitants of the mainlands, and always bore the name which they bear now. I think the Canaans in Caria are Autothoconus but they say they came from Crete. The Bodini, unlike the Gelionis in Scathia, are Autothokons. And he goes on. Theristides, an ancient Athenian historian and general, wrote the following. The Sycanians appear to have been the next settlers, although they pretend to have been the first of all in Autothokonis, but the facts show that they were Iberians, driven by the Lugarians from the river Sycantus in Iberia. In a fragment of Hellenicus, the author states that the Athenians, Arcadians, Aegeantians, and Thebians are Alathaconis. Strabo, elaborating the ethnographic Homer passage on Crete, describes the Kydonians and the Etiocratians as Alathaconis. Isocrates addressed his countrymen with the following passage, For we did not become dwellers in this land by driving others out of it, nor by finding it uninhabited, 
nor by coming together here a motley horde composed of many races. But we are of lineage so noble and so pure that throughout our history we have continued in possession of the very land which gave us birth. Since we are sprung from the very soil and are able to address our city by the very names which we apply to our nearest kin. For we alone, of all the Hellenes, have the right to call our city at once nurse and fatherland and mother. So when Plato tells his audience this, she, Athena, founded your city a thousand years before ours, receiving from the earth and Hephaestus the seed of your race. And afterwards, she founded ours, of which the constitution is recorded in our sacred registers to be 8,000 years old. There is, of course, some mythology attached to it. According to Homer, Hephaestus was the son of Zeus and Hera. Hephaestus was born weak and ugly and he was thrown from Mount Olympus. He landed in the sea by the island of Limnos, and he broke his leg or foot and was thenceforth called the Lame One. He was found by Achilles' mother, Theodos, and was raised by the local Thracian tribe where they taught him the art of craftsmen and made the first forge on that island. He became known as the God of Forges, blacksmithing, sculpting, fire, and volcanoes. Hephaestus took revenge on his mother for throwing him from Mount Olympus by crafting a chair that would bind the sitter to the chair. Hera was stuck, and the gods tried to convince Hephaestus to release Hera, but he continuously refused. Finally, Dionysus, the god of partying, got Hephaestus extremely drunk and brought him to Mount Olympus on the back of a donkey. Once at Olympus, Zeus negotiated the release of Hera by offering Aphrodite to be his wife. Now, Hephaestus was one of the kindest and most well-liked gods amongst the gods and men. What he lacked in looks, he gained in personality. And he crafted all sorts of new adventures. Here's a passage from Homer. She found him, Hephaestus, sweating as he turned here and there to his bellows busily, since he was working on 20 tripods. Hephaestus took the huge blower off from the block of the anvil, limping, and yet his shrunken legs moved lightly beneath him. He set the bellows away from the fire and gathered and put away all of the tools which he had worked in a silver strong box. Then, with a sponge, he wiped clean his forehead and both hands and his massive neck and hairy chest, and put on a tunic, and took up a heavy stick in his hand, and went to the doorway limping, and in support of their master, moved his attendants. These are golden and in appearance, like living young women. There is intelligence in their hearts, and there is speech in them, and strength, and from the immortal gods they have learned how to do things. These stirred nimbly in support of their master. Eventually, Hephaestus was approached by Zeus after the betrayal of Prometheus, and it was actually Hephaestus who made Pandora. You know, that first woman, the one that was a curse to men, because Prometheus stole the fire back and gave it to men. 
that fire was actually from Hephaestus's forge as well. After some time, Aphrodite, who was forced into this marriage to the ugliest of gods, was caught having a steamy love affair with Ares. Hephaestus crafted a thin golden net and caught the two lovers in the act. Hephaestus then invited all of the gods to come witness her betrayal. Eventually, the lovers were released under the negotiation of Poseidon. Aphrodite became pregnant by Ares and they had a daughter called Harmonia and Hephaestus created a cursed necklace that bore her name. Hephaestus and Aphrodite divorced, and Hephaestus ended up siring children with mortal lovers. Then one day, Zeus played a practical joke on Hephaestus and told him that Athena was finally ready to lose her virginity and wanted to lose it with him. When Athena finally came to visit Hephaestus, he made his moves. He made his advancements on the goddess of wisdom in war. She obviously rejected his advancements, so Hephaestus tried to pursue her by force. After some struggle, Hephaestus prematurely ejaculated and his seed landed on Athena's thigh. Athena picked up a rag made of wool and wiped it off of her leg and threw the rag down to earth. Now remember, the earth is actually a goddess. And when Hephaestus' seed landed, it managed to impregnate Gaia, who bore a son, Erechthonius or Erechtheus. Erechtheus became one of the earliest rulers of Attica. The Athenians thought of themselves as Erechtheidae, or the sons of Erechtheus. All Athenians were then earth brothers, and thus deserved to have equal access to political power. Also, remember that contest for patronage over Athens between Poseidon and Athena, when Poseidon slammed his triton down and he created a salty spring, well, that was called Erechtheus. Athenian Autothakani is also has links to nationalistic political ideology in the 5th and 4th century BCE. This justifies the Athenian greatness and conquest over other nationalities. In Menexenes, Plato has Socrates explaining the Athenian hatred against the barbarians. Because we are pure-blooded Greeks, unadulterated by barbarian stock, for their cohabit with us, none of the types of Pelops or Cadmus or Egyptus or Danis, and numerous other of the kind who are naturally barbarians, though nominally Greeks. Do you remember one of my first episodes where I told you all about the competition between Athena and Poseidon over becoming the patron god of Attica? Do you remember Poseidon raised his triton and slammed it down on the Acropolis? Well, again, that name of that salty stream was called the Sea of Arachtheus, and as mythology would have it, the stream became personified and became the next king of Athens. Just like Cecropa, Erechtheus was also half-man, half-snake. In Homer's Iliad, Erechtheus is the son of quote-unquote grain-giving earth, reared by Athena. In the Odyssey, it records that Athena returned to Athens and entered the strong-built house of Erechtheus. Mythologists have dated the rule of Erechtheus to around 1700 BCE. 
Erechthonius was a name synonymous with Erechtheus, and maybe the same person, or maybe a grandfather, or the son of Erechtheus. Who knows, but they're related somehow. Now there's one other name I want to bring up. Eurestikon was a king of Thessaly. He was sometimes called Atheon. Eurestikon took 20 men with him to the sacred grove of Demeter, where he cut down a black poplar tree, where nymphs gathered around to dance. The tree groaned as he wounded it. Demeter, feeling the tree's discomfort at once, flew down at the grove, taking a mortal woman's form, where she advised Erechtheon against cutting down the tree, warning him of Demeter's wrath. Erechtheon then rudely told her to leave, threatening to strike her down with his axe and saying he needed this tree to build an extension for his house, where he could hold feasts. Demeter then resumed her divine form and promised revenge. She sent an insatiable hunger to him, and no matter how much he ate and drank, he could never satisfy his hunger or his thirst. Even his parents refused to visit him, and he ended up wasting all his wealth for food, becoming a beggar, living off of the crumbs thrown at him by those passing by. So now here is Plato. Solon marveled at his words, and earnestly requested the priest to inform him exactly and in order about these former citizens. You are welcome to hear about them, Solon, said the priest, both for your own sake and that for your city, and above all, for the sake of the goddess who is the common patron and parent and educator of both our cities. She founded your city a thousand years before ours receiving from Gaia and his Festus the seed of your race, and afterwards she founded ours, of which the constitution is recorded in our sacred registers to be 8,000 years old. As touching your citizens of 9,000 years ago, I will briefly inform you of their laws and of their most famous action. The exact particulars of the whole we will hereafter go through at our leisure in the sacred registers themselves. If you compare these very laws with ours, you will find that many of ours are the counterpart of yours, as they were in the olden time. In the first place, there is a caste system of priests, which is separated from all of the others. Next, there are artificers, who ply their several crafts by themselves and do not intermix. And also there are the class of shepherds, and of hunters, as well as that of husbandmen. And you will observe, too, that the warriors in Egypt are distinct from all other classes and are commanded by the law to devote themselves solely to military pursuits. Moreover, the weapons which they carry are shields and spears, a style of equipment which the goddess taught of Asiatics first to us, as in part of the world first to you. Then, as to wisdom, do you observe our law from the very first made a study of the whole order of things, exceeding even to the prophecy and the medicine which gives health out of these divine elements, deriving what was needful of human life and adding every sort of knowledge which was akin to them? All this order and arrangement the goddess first imparted to you when establishing your city, and she chose the spot of the earth which you were born, because she saw the happy temperament of the seasons in that land, and would produce the wisest of men. Wherefore the goddess, 
who was a lover of both war and of wisdom, selected and first of all settled that spot, which was most likely to produce men likest herself. And there you dwelt, having such laws as these, and still better ones, and excelled all mankind in virtue, as became the children and disciples of the gods. Now different gods have their allotments in different places, which they are set in order. Hephaestus and Athene, who were brother and sister and sprang from the same father, having a common nature and being united also in the love of philosophy and in art, both obtained as their common portion this land, which was naturally adapted for wisdom and for virtue. And there they implanted, brave children of the soil, and put to their minds the order of government. Their names are preserved, but their actions have disappeared by the reason of the destruction of those who received the tradition in the lapse of ages. For when there were any survivors, as I have already said, they were men who dwelt in the mountains, and they were ignorant of the art of writing, and had heard only the names of the chiefs of the land, but very little about their actions. The names they were willing enough to give to their children, but the virtues and the laws of their predecessors they only knew by obscure traditions. And as they themselves and their children lacked for many generations the necessaries of life, they directed their attention to the supply of their wants, and of them they conversed to the neglect of the events that had happened in times long past. For mythology and the inquiry into antiquity are first introduced into the cities when they began to have leisure, and when they see that the necessaries of life have already been provided, but not before. And this is reason why the names of the ancients have been preserved to us and not their actions. This I infer because Solon said that the priests in their narrative of that war mentioned most of the names which are recorded prior to the time of Theseus, such as Cacropa, Erechtheus, Erechthonius, and Erestacon, and the names of the women in like manner. Now I'm going to end this with a reminder of what virtue is in the ancient times. Virtue is not how many times you've helped an old lady across the street, or given to the poor, or helped people in need. Virtue is defined by not letting people disrespect you. You gain virtue by killing and by conquering. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. The backpack was called Para, so Ageless renamed Alexandros to the name Paris for backpack. 
The Hittites have a letter written to King Alexandru of Walusa. Alexandru sounds close to Prince Alexandros. Walusa has been identified with the archaeological site of Troy. This correspondence was first proposed in 1924 by M.O. Forer, who also suggested that the name Ayawa corresponds to the Homeric term for the Greeks, which he uses many, but one of them would be Achaeans. Forer's work was primarily motivated by linguistic similarities since Belusa was associated with the place name of Tarusa, showing how striking parallels to the Greek name Wilios and Troia, respectively. 